0: This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. tradition of singer-songwriters, one would be hard-pressed to hold a conversation about the topic without bringing up the legendary Blaze Foley. Blaze Foley, originally from Arkansas, was a true rambler and eventually settled into the Austin, Texas music scene around the mid-1970s, playing alongside artists such as Gerf Morlix and Towns Van Zandt. His life, a testament to truthful songwriting with an everyman air, was unfortunately cut short on February 1st, 1989, when he was shot and killed. His limited exposure and the disappearance of many of the master copies of his records left enough space for a legend to form. And it seemed that only those who really had their ear to the ground would be able to recall Blaze's trembling baritone and loping acoustic guitar style. That was until January 2018. Adapted from author Sybil Rosen's novel, Living in the Woods in a Tree, Remembering Blaze, Ethan Hawke directed and breathed a new life into the tragic songwriter. Portrayed by Ben Dickey, a green actor and a well-versed musician in his own right, Blaze Foley and his work were again brought into the light of the world. Today on Americana Podcast, The 51st State, Robert O'Keefe speaks with Ben Dickey, a force that we here can only describe as the embodiment of the powers and sway of the universe. Ben Dickey, a natural Arkansan as well, was only a year older than Blaze when filming of the biopic Wrapped. He too had been a struggling musician, moving from place to place in order to pursue the one thing he wanted to do, play music. The parallels between Dicky and his character are almost too uncanny not to suspect something mystical at work. From his heritage, to his lifestyle, to his music, down to, or in this case, up to his build, there's no one else who could have brought Blaze to life quite like Ben Dickey has. So join us as our host, Robert O'Keefe speaks with Dickey about his acting career, his life, and his influences, And about his new record, *Glimmer on the Outskirts*, on the newly established imprint label, Sexhawk Black. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, the 51st state.
1: I'm going down to the Greyhound station, gonna get a ticket to ride. Gonna find that lady with two or three kids and sit down by side. Riding right till the sun comes up and down Around me about two or three times Smoking cigarettes in the last seat Try to hide the sorrow from the people I meet And get along with it all Go down with people, say all oh. Sing a song with a friend Change
2: the shape that i
1: in Get back into game, start playing again
2: This is Americana.com 51st State, and our guest today is Ben Dickey. And I uh, want to talk to Ben about his music and his fil- film com- career and um, all the uh, things that have brought him here today. We're here at Collings Guitars doing our broadcast tonight. And so um, here we go. Let me talk to you about a few things. Number one, uh, Ben, I wanted to tell you that I really loved that song. Uh, at the end of the movie called uh, Blazes and Sybil's Lullaby. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And that's a song that you wrote. Right. Uh, yeah, when when I first met <clears throat> Alia
3: Shawkat, who played Sybil Rosen, mm-hmm. we were in New York in September. We started filming the first day of December, so we were kind of just meeting, doing some readings, and mm-hmm. just, you know, right. looking at chemistry. And she and I had great chemistry, became great friends really fast, but that night we all went out and saw Minnie and Moskowitz uh because of Eddie's film that Ethan really wanted us to see together it had like a spirit a spirit he wanted to inject into Blaze and I confessed to Alia you know she was just how you feeling and uh yeah so nervous you know like like ridiculously nervous and I'm a musician and performer and you know you I always get nerves playing uh on stage, no matter what it is, but this was a particular different nervousness because it was entering, it was a new job, it was a new field, it was a new adventure, it was all these things. And uh, she said, Look, I'm nervous too. I was really, really nervous to meet you. I was really, really nervous to like meet Ethan and start working, and, and I'm nervous sitting here talking to you right now. And she said, the, the trick is to use it, right? And I know what that means, you know, like, I was like, Right, right, right. So we went and saw this movie together, and uh, had a couple drinks together, and then we said our goodbyes. And I went home, and I, you know, just just allowed myself to write a song to sort of like use those nerves in an actual way in the moment. And I wanted to write a song because I was fond of Allie and I'm, we're we're really really close friends now. But I, I felt I felt the pressure of of uh, being blaze and Sybil and like protecting that. Bond on screen, and I wanted to write a song that would protect us. That's really what I was doing. I had no intention on sticking it in the movie. I was going to really just write it and see if Alia wanted to record it with me on my memory, on my little, you know, memo pad on my iP- iPhone. So I wrote it just to do that and could get rid of my nerves and kind of put this, like, some sort of protective aura around us where we could, like, hum that song together. And, you know, like, it would be something that was for us. For Alia and I, but also for Blaze and Sybil. So that's how it came up. So Alia and I kind of hummed the melody throughout the movie. And Ethan was always like, what is that? And he finally found out that I'd written this song. And he was like, oh, God, it's great. You know, I want to put it in the movie. So that's how it came about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful song. And, yeah, thank
2: uh, you. Did, did you know that Alia sang when you started I mean the
3: first meeting we had you know uh she had done this movie where she had she was in a band and she played bass it was like this like funny horror movie where she was being attacked by but she was a played a punk band that had like <laughs> crashed at a house that they shouldn't have crashed at but uh we were visiting and I, I had played we had done a couple of readings and I had played a couple of blaze songs just to kind of let them know like I may mess up this other part but I can do this other you know I can do this music thing pretty good so we all sat around and played and I handed her a guitar just to see if she, I was like, I saw that you played bass in this movie. She like, oh, I learned like four songs. I don't know how to do it. And she said, but I do sing. So we just messed around and sang a couple songs and that's when it dawned on me. I was like, well, that would be fun, almost like an acting exercise to learn a song that's ours. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then like we would just kind of hum it together and we were shooting in a tree house where it was cold so we would hum the melody together. And the way that we recorded it, she never really knew the words. Because I had, I mean, I had only played it for her once with the words, but I taught her the melody. And the recording that's on the record, like literally, we rapped that night, and we had a a pretty nice field mic um, that we were using to record everything. And then they were recording a Linda, Segarra um, recording Lucinda Williams song, and I was like, "Oh yeah, we should come sit down with me real quick." And we she, we passed through it once, and she, I had the lyrics in front of her, and we went and did it. And that's what's on the record. Wow. Yeah. So it was like really like, pressure's on, but it's also, we were like wrapping the movie and there was emotions about that. Mm. There was something captured in there that was pretty magical. I,
2: it's a real standout. Yeah. I, really, thank you very much. I, really thought, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah.
1: When the wind don't blow, I find your face in fallen shadows. I need you close to me for my rhymes and riding rainbows. Glide on earthly byways, but you can't come home. Oh, you could stay with me for a little while.
4: You know that home is wherever you are. Let me
1: ride the lonely miles with you.
2: So uh, can we go back to your beginnings? Yeah, uh, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. How how did you first get into music? Well, I was born in Little Rock, and i I've
3: always I've always had a shine to music. I mean, my some of my first memories are being able to like impress young older like, my parents and stuff by being able to be like that that's that song in like two notes. You know, it's like the that music game. But my grandfather had a big influence on me and the tactile part of playing music and that he had this guitar and he was a wonderful singer. Uh, he had been an opera singer and he sang in the church and he was an incredible whistler and he was very musical. I used to fish with him all the time and for for spans of an hour he would just whistle and he wouldn't talk and he would just whistle. and So beautiful. So he had this guitar that every once in a while I saw him handle and play, and it was a black 1935 Gibson L30. And I remember being impressed on the fact that it was made during the Depression and it had been hand-painted, and it was important. He impressed on me that you may not play this guitar unless I'm sitting right with you. You know, <laughs> But I knew where it was when I was at my grandparents' house and he wasn't there. I would pull it out just to look at it, but I dared not touch it. I, I figured somehow his, like... Celestial strings would be like, Ha, ah, he's touching my guitar. <laughs> he got cancer when I was nine, I think, eight or nine. And he very ceremoniously, I think they gave him like a year or something, and he had lost his hair and everything, but he very ceremoniously got the guitar and pulled it down and put it and said, that's yours now, and you can play it whenever you want it. And he gave me about a 25-minute talk about how to tune it, how to take care of it, which way to fold the strings when you're changing strings. And it became very clear to me that this he was putting me on a mission and I needed to take care of this guitar and he wanted me to play it. He said, as you get older in your life, you'll find yourself alone, but you'll never be alone if you have this. So in the time that he had left, I wanted to like learn stuff. So I learned, I would just crash-coursed myself listening to tapes and recordings and learning licks and being like, hey, look, I'm doing what you asked. <laughs> I'm doing what you asked. And when he passed away... Very mysteriously, it all came easy to me, I don't know why, I just did. And I would listen to The Beatles and Hank Williams and I would be like, just knowing how to tune the guitar seemed like somebody had given me a secret code to another universe. Yeah. Ever since then, that's all, I mean, that's where my mind goes, that's what I would prefer to be doing, it's guitars, pianos, mostly guitars, but I have a feeling that music is, everything's musical in this world, in this galaxy, and and everything resonates. and. I communicate musically. I sing songs to my dog. Uh, I can rem- remember, you know. I was I was a chef in this life, and I can remember things because I remember I memorize things in in melody. And you know, I I have to remember to do this and this. I Have to remember <laughs> to do that. And I got it, you know. And it stays that way. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm all about it all day long.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. So you went from there to uh, with your L thirty L thirty to. Uh, uh, a, a band? Shake yeah. Ray Tribune? Shake a
3: uh, Turbine. Shake Ray Turbine. Turbine. Yeah. Which oh. I got from like one of those like it was like a Korean War era like you know, swag book for like teenagers of like, You should uh-huh. join the army, kid. Jets yeah. are cool, you yeah. know. And it was like this pilot got shot down over Korea and he was like Miami, the turbine's shaking. There's rays coming out of it, and I was like, "Shake Ray Turbine, that's awesome." <laughs> but uh, I had a bunch of bands as warm-up bands that we, you know, we we would call ourselves a band. We never played a show, and I had a couple bands that did play shows. But Shake Ray Turbine came when I was about 17, and I had I had I had uh, upgraded to a Les Paul, and my whole life I've been drawn to black Gibson guitars with white trim. And I, it's like, that looks like home to me. Mm-hmm. So I had this black custom last fall in 1974, and I started this band Shake Red Turbine with some friends. That was my first time having other musicians that were at my caliber to play with, and that was really fun. Because I kind of was outplayed my friends and you know, everybody, people were, I had had the whole Zeppelin catalog and like most of like Hendrix's stuff kind of like in the ballpark. And that's what I wanted to do, and so these guys that I started playing with could keep up and and it was great fun and we put ourselves on the road when I was about seventeen or eighteen in this very like rich punk rock community we were a little bit more maybe complex than like four bar you know punk rock songs, but the whole that then that whole culture stuck under my ribs because I loved travel, I loved other musicians, I loved seeing other people that would like open my mind up and like impress me and teach me new things I loved learning about amplifiers I loved learning about you know everything about it and it all just felt like home and even though you know touring is hard as you know and especially when you're a kid you don't have any money but the adventure was just the adventure was great fun. So I've been addicted to it, you know. It's my way of being. It's not the easiest thing to maintain, you know, like your life. And uh, at 39, I made this movie about Blaze Foley, and for the first time in my life, I'm able to just play music and travel around. So far, you know, if you're out there playing music, the trick is don't stop.
1: I didn't try to fall in love with you. Tried everything that I can do to keep myself from falling like I've done so many times. try to wash it all away in anything and every day. I think of all the things we said when I saw daylight in your eyes. I saw
2: daylight in your eyes. So did you feel there was a connection of being 39 when you made this movie? And Big Bla- time. <laughs> and Blaze being 39 when he yeah, passed
3: away? Yeah, you know, there those kind of things where you're like, you know, I'm from Arkansas, so it was mm-hmm. Blaze. Right. My dad moved to Georgia, so I spent a lot of time in Georgia, about 40 miles from where those guys were living in that. Really? So it started there. Um, it get, it just keeps going. I was 39 when I made the movie. Thir- Blaze was 39 when he died. Um, it goes on and on. I mean, uh, when when Alia Skyped with Ethan, because, you know, we only, we only had one choice for Sybil and one choice for Towns, and they both said yes. Wow. And Ethan Skyped with Alia, and I, I nervously like walked around the block because you know we were like, I wonder if this is going to work. And she said yes. She left that little Skype meeting and went to a lunch with her agent and a woman who she had first acted with when she was a kid that she remained close with. She told them about this interesting project she had just been pitched by Ethan Hawke about this guy, Blaze Foley. And her friend that she had worked with in the past that was about her mother's age... Went in her bag and pulled out her phone and sent, showed her a picture of she and Sybil at the beach when they were teenagers. She had gone to high school with Sybil, and they had just reconnected over the, like the last 10 years, over like the 40th anniversary, or 50th anniversary. And she, she, everybody got teary, you know. So those kind of things continue to happen, just mm-hmm. strange, weird occurrences. So there's affirmations keep happening, and then when when they're happening, when you're working on it, you can't let it overwhelm you because mm-hmm. it's takes your breath away. But it continues to happen where, well, of course that was meant to be, because look at all these ties, you know? Right. Yeah, right. so when I was, you know, when I turned 40 in 2017 after we wrapped, I clocked like, wow, I'm now older than Blaze was. You know, he didn't make it there. Right. And then when I saw myself on screen as Blaze, because it it was, I didn't watch any dailies when we made it, all those affirmations sometimes like tidal up and hit you. And it really does take your breath away. Mm-hmm. It's really moving, but it can be overwhelming where you you don't want to make a false move and, and mess up this current that's carrying you, you know?
1: Because
3: right. I feel so, so grateful to be involved in it. I feel so lucky that Ethan had the confidence to put me in that position. And that Sybil Rosen was open, her heart, and Sybil and I are good friends. And all these things propel you forward. So it starts to make you be like, don't make a false move so you mm-hmm. don't right. <laughs> end this positive energy. you know. Right, right.
1: So, it's wild, man. Sitting by the road, going nowhere Oh, but I get there somehow some days The way I know Sitting by the road, looking at the sky Wondering where do we go, why do we die What did I say, did I really try Just sitting by the road, not a doubt in my mind but if you believe that, you believe anything. Staying when it's nice, out when it rains. What's bad about that when you're sitting by the road?
2: So um I'm, curi- I'm curious, Ben, uh how did you end up in Philadelphia from uh being in, uh, in, in, in the band and then moving up to Philadelphia? Yeah.
3: Um, so when I was about 13, a friend of mine that was 16 started a record label. Mm-hmm. And he started a record shop. And, uh, we were putting out his, he was putting out his friend's records. And, you know, a little punk rock community of kids. And, uh, about five years later, my friend Burt Taggart, um, he went off and did his own thing. And he relinquished the, the, uh, label over to my buddy, Matt Worth. And Matt ran it for his senior year of high school and my band, Shake Red Turbine, was kind of like the biggest band on the label at the time and we were you know, playing more shows to more people and he was gonna go to school. I dropped out of high school in my, in my senior year. I was very impatient with it all and I wanted to go on tour. So when he was gonna go to school, it was gonna be between Chicago and Philadelphia, and I had been to Chicago and Philadelphia touring, and I was very fond of those, and I wanted to keep my band together, because all of us were gonna graduate in one shape, way, or form, and my goal was to keep the band together, and, and he wanted to keep File 13 going, and we had some friends in Philly that he was gonna put on the label too, so I wanted to go to champion the label and make what we were doing in Little Rock kind of grow, so he chose Temple. And I was like, well, I'm going to come, you know, I'll come live with you and I'll bring my band up and we'll do the whole thing. So really every move I've made in this life so far has been dictated by music, for better or for worse. But it's the way I am, you know. Right.
2: And music was uh, your connection with Ethan? Is that? Yeah. Is that I mean, how
3: so how we met uh, Beth over here, her good, best good friend growing up was a woman named Ryan Shaw Hughes. And Ryan Shaw Hughes fell in love with Ethan Hawk and... Uh, when we found that out, you know, I, I knew who Ethan was and I was fond of what he did. But when we found out he was dating our friend, we were like, well, we better make sure he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. So he and Ryan wanted to send him our way so we could give him a triple sniff, you know, yeah. what, what are you up to here? <laughs> and uh, I immediately took a shine to him and because he's from Texas and I'm from Arkansas the first things we talked about were like, What cafeteria did your family used to take you to? You know, mm-hmm. what barbecue did you have? Mm-hmm. And then that was my like sniffing process. I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. this guy's all right. He likes Frankies and uh Lubies. Mm-hmm. Uh so <laughs> we became, you know, buddies through and then really we bonded over music and uh I had just made an E P with the band I had at the time called Blood Feathers, and it wasn't even out yet, but we had a great fun visit, first visit, and immediately I was like, yeah, it looks real, they look in love, and he's chill, and he's working on a play. And I gave him this EP, and he really fell in love with the EP, and he like called me I was like, this is great. So he would start coming to my shows, and I would start going to his plays, and the four of us kind of just would, you know, we'd go on trips together, we'd do things, we just got close, you know? It's tough sometimes when your when your sweetheart was like wants you to put you on a play date with somebody and you don't really like them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it rarely happens. Luckily with us, but it it so happened that every time we'd go visit Ryan, you know, Ethan and I would go do stuff, and so we became really close. And over the years, we would talk about when we discovered, you know, Blaze was always on my map, but I really it wasn't very clear. And when John Prime covered clay pigeons, it got really clear. And my dad actually got really into it, and he sent me a bunch of Blaze songs that arrived when I was living in Arizona literally a day before she and I flew to Canada to be with Ethan and Ryan. And we were going to go on a big road trip and then end up in Nova Scotia and have some like chill out summertime. And I had this CD with me. And so on that particular trip, I had seven Blaze songs on this mixed CD my dad had made me and we just listened to them over and over and over again. And being like the sort of musical nerdy archaeologist, I, re- I reckoned myself, I was really shocked that I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "What the heck, you know? So inside of that friendship came this wild bond over that kind of music. Mm-hmm.
2: So Ethan had paid attention to uh, Yeah, Blaise he was a long time. He was, he was deep
3: time? into towns, but he, we were when we listened to all that blaze music that trip, I started telling him, I was like, "You know it would be a cool thing to do." is to make a series, kind of like a a fiction, non-fiction series where you could focus on individual artists from the outlaw world Mm -hmm. and they're so rich Mm -hmm. of stuff and make little hour-long episodes Mm -hmm. and they're all driven by that particular artist's songs Mm -hmm. and we would daydream about that for years and he was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool and we Mm -hmm. could, you could have the artists intersecting and it'd be a really fun thing to do and... Then the more we thought about it, the harder it would be to get licensing for the songs. And like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, <laughs> yeah. well, this is going to be kind of hard. And why did this person's episode end up better than, you know, we were like, it's going to get tough. And we sort of let that go. And about four years later on New Year's Eve, unannounced without any talk about it before, Ethan with a head full of booze, as one does on New Year's Eve. I mean, he looked at me across a room and was like, you're going to believe Blaze Foley in a movie. I'm going to make it. And my band had just broken up, and I really thought what was happening was he this was being, is the Blood Feathers band. Yeah, Blood Feathers. It? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, that was a tough deal for me. It was really tough. In the moment, I thought he was doing a like, dude, you can do anything you want to do. And he's been asking me to act for a long time because he thought I would be good at it. He thought I would enjoy it. and He thought I would understand it. So um, he, oh, he, you know, he said that to me. As here it's New Year's Eve. He woke me up on the first day of the year at like nine. And it's freezing cold in New York City. He's like, you want to go for a walk? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm just getting introduced to my hangover, and I don't I don't <laughs> want to go to a walk. So he made me get up and go for a walk. He's like, I'll buy you a coffee and a smoothie. And he just was like, do you think you want to do this? Do you think you could do it? I think you could do this. I think you could do this. And I love him, and he loves me, and I, I could tell he was serious. And I was like, I, maybe, you know, I I, I would try, certainly try, but I didn't know what level he meant. Was this going to be in New York with a handheld camera, and it was going to be the two of us? South by Southwest of 16, or uh, yeah, 2016. He asked Lewis Black, "Hey, I'm thinking about making a Blaze Foley movie. Do you think there's a movie there?" And he was like, "Yeah, there's definitely a movie there." And he turned him on to Sybil's book, right? Mm-hmm. Living in a tree in the uh, in the woods. Oh, right. Living, mm-hmm. Living in the right. woods in a tree. Yeah. yeah right. So he called me at, like, midnight from South By, and he was like, give me your address. I'm sending you something. Read it. As soon as you read it, call me back. So he sent two copies overnight, and we read it overnight. And we both were like, good night. This is amazing. Because it was, she's a wonderful person. She's a wonderful writer, and she so illuminated their love and his talent and his heart. It was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, wow. I mean, it was really, really crazy. So at that moment... And with Ethan's enthusiasm and his wife's enthusiasm, because they both were producers and Ethan directed, they were like, this is going to happen. When can, when can you tell us yes or no? And I said, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you yes right now. So from there, I just went into the songs. And the songs sort of hypnotized me into a place where I felt confident enough to do the rest of it. Sitting
1: by the road, I'm
4: going nowhere. But I get there somehow, someday, some way I know. Sitting by the road, looking at the sky, wondering where do we go, why do we die? What did I say? Did I really try? Just sitting by the road, not a doubt in my mind. But if you believe that. You
2: I want to ask you about one of the things that I thought was really impressive about uh, and must have been difficult, Uh, maybe it wasn't difficult for you, but his whole physical uh, appearance I mean I, I thought you get n- knocked out his voice was great his yeah. voice is great and the songs are great and and the uh, you know the cadence of how you worked through that it yeah. just sounded m- wonderful but what I thought was must have been really difficult was that whole how he kind of had that vulnerability because he was had polio and he yeah. kind of had that limp but he also kind of came in like a giant bear at the yeah. same time how did you manage to pull that off, and what did you watch, to, or who told you, or what, what so, did
3: you So, you know, as many videos are there out there with Blaze, he's never moving. Yes, He's, right. he's never up and moving. It, yes. and I looked and looked and looked. Yeah. So, Sybil Rosen and I were, were email pen pals for like two months leading up, and she came to set. She was at set every day and had a huge presence, but... That was the one thing I couldn't figure out. So the literal physicality of his movement, she totally pantomimed for me. And it was like, it was like, because I had come up with a limp that I was working, right. you know, that was way different. Right. And she was like, mm, it was more, it was more kind of more simple. Uh-huh and the one thing that she kept saying that whenever he was in a room he was rooted down mm-hmm. like everything he was like when he played he was rooted when i play music i'm very i move around a lot mm-hmm. you know right. and his whole thing was like he was rooted and that gave him tremendous strength his he was always she was like he was always vulnerable he was always shy but he was wildly you know if he felt like somebody was in danger if he felt like he needed to protect somebody he would be a different. Mm. He would move quickly, right? <laughs> and right. and uh, so the the combination of those adjectives, and then her her moving around.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, I can feel him. I can see him a little bit, and I'm I'm already a big guy. I'm you know I often find myself uh, in the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I knew that feeling of wanting to like get flush with a wall and not be seen, but at the same time take take up a big presence. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I would watch all those videos of him, you know, performing on those old, you know, weird access TV shows and stuff. And it <laughs> just gave me, you know, they gave me clues into like what how he must have moved. Mm-hmm. So that's how it all came together.
2: Well, I, I I was impressed because I I knew, knew Blaze. I played some shows with Blaze and, yeah. and had some some experiences. And really uh, when sort of about halfway through the movie when he sort of starts becoming more of a star and he's got that go- going right right you, you, that was like when I went oh there's Blaine. there it's, he is it's, yeah, it's fantastic I, appreciate that. I mean it was really uh, you know I, I thought uh, very impressive to be able to capture his movement in yeah. the way he was because that was important um, how he was I think it was uh, made, made made him somewhat special he, you someone did. uh someone told me um
3: said a similar thing, like, you know, the movement you got right. She said, you know, with Blaze, I would de- I'd drive down South Congress and he'd be ten blocks away, but I could see his frame moving uh-huh. and I'd know it was him. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, sun to his back or whatever. You
2: know? I, I, absolutely. So you you know, you also got to work with uh, Uh, Steve Steve Zahn and Sam Rockwell and Charlie Sexton. How how was it working with these guys? Well,
3: I mean, Charlie uh, has been on my map since I was a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, when he was doing his stuff with Bowie and when his first record came out. And I was always fond of what he did. I remember reading Guitar Premier magazine at the age, I was about 12, they had an interview with him and said he had played with Jerry Lee Lewis on stage when he was 13. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shoot, I only have one more year to do that before he's, you know. <laughs> so I'd always clock this guy that was about nine years older than me that was doing his thing. So, uh, And when he joined Bob's band, I was jealous of Bob, you know. Uh, Steve and
2: Rockwell, <laughs> you know what I mean? You were jealous of Bob in a different way than anybody else has been jealous yeah, of Yeah, yeah.
3: I was like, man, you get everybody, man. Because you know, I like G.E. Smith too. And I was like, I, was follow, I would always follow who Bob would rope in. And I had this sort of like, you know, fantasy version of how those meetings went, like, you know, how those things. And he got Charlie. And I loved Time Out of Mind, that Dylan record. And then Charlie joined the band. And I was like, well, the next record's going to be crazy, you know, Love and Theft. And that's one of my favorite Dylan records. Uh when Zahn and Rockwell showed up those boys were in character as those oil men the whole time uh-huh. with the goal of throwing me off making me uncomfortable really yeah and, and they really were and uh, Linkletter I knew uh-huh. and he's a sweetheart and uh-huh. he and I enjoy each other's company and uh he was he was just funny. I mean, he was he was so proud of Ethan being on the set, and he was just he was like really giddy with the whole project. But Steve and uh, Sam were in character messing with me constantly. <laughs> and when they first meet my character, both of them were were they had a bet. I don't know if they had a real bet going, but they had a bet between them going to try to get me to laugh or break or something. Because they were you know Steve was had chaw the whole time that character. He was blowing it in my in my face and just. <laughs> belching on me and doing all this <laughs> stuff but I was just blazed so they couldn't ruffle me and I was, I was like if you ruffle me I'm going to punch you out I met as my first time meeting Steve I met Rockwell about 15 years ago at a play that Ethan was doing and I, I could tell how much he cared about what he did by the way he wa- he went and watched a play and he was He was so proud of Ethan, and I was like, "Oh, that that made me have affection for him because I saw that he really cared about his friend, and I saw he really cared about his craft, and that he had come out to see this play for the fourth time or something, and he was really like rooting his friends on." Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Oh, that's a good dude." Mm -hmm. But they came in and made it. You know, they raised hell. They had their they had a lasso with them. They were out lassoing people. you know during the in betweens. But they're all, all three of those guys. I revere and I think that they're aces at what they do so I took it really seriously despite all the shenanigans you know I was mm-hmm. like you know Rockwell's got an Oscar the next year and, mm-hmm. and he deserved it and they after we wrapped both of them came over and just gave me warm words and said we know we'll see you again and which sounded like encouragement to me so that was a big deal.
4: Yeah. Letters talk on the phone Paint some little and We was way out in the cotton. We
0: was way out in the, the below is a their... We're going to take a quick break. At Americana Podcast, The 51st State, we would like to take a moment to recognize songs we feel either embody the spirit of Americana music or are pertinent to today's interview. Selected by our good friend and music connoisseur, Will vote. this is Will's Pick. You say... Hayes Carl's Be There, from the record, What It Is. Known for his humor, sarcasm, and sharp eye, Hayes Carl writes songs that use a colorful cast of characters to paint musical pictures of our world. Born near Houston, Texas, Carl found his voice playing in shrimper bars and honky-tonks on the Texas coast near Galveston. Many of those locals found their way into his early songs. Over the last decade, Carl has built a solid reputation as a clever songwriter and an appealing performer. His last two albums have shown a new level of skill and maturity in his songwriting. From the recent release, What It Is, Will's pick is a song called Be There. Initially, the lyrics seem a little sweeter than many of Carl's originals, but in the end, the song flashes some of his classic dark humor. If one is to listen carefully, it is revealed that Be There is not the love song it initially seems to be.
4: You say you
1: will, but I know you, I know you won't, I know you won't, I know you won't be there.
2: So Ben, you won the Special Jury Prize at Sundance Film Festival for your portrayal of Blaze Foley. What was the touring the film fest circuit like?
3: Um, it was exciting. It was my first time doing that. You know, I'd been to South by before, but I'd never been to Sundance, and I'd never been. We went over to Switzerland to Locarno, and um, uh, I didn't know that there was an award ceremony at Sundance, <laughs> including when I was in the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, so winning that thing was a, th- a high thrill. Believe that, but I didn't know it was. I didn't like. I didn't know what was happening, and I had to pee really bad when I got. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, when they gave that specific award, my, I was like, the cameras were next to me. And I was like, as soon as they announced this name, I'm going the other way. I'm going to pee. And I barely heard my name. But it's really fun to make a movie. It's really fun to be at a festival with people who also made movies because they're little squads, little teams. Mm-hmm. And all those filmmakers that were at the 2018 uh, Sundance, I knew a good amount of them. And the films were all great. So it was super fun to visit with artists and filmmakers and people who have been doing it for a long time. It was great to hear people that really enjoyed the movie. But I, having been new, new to the process, I enjoyed seeing all these little squads of filmmakers and their, and their cast and their producers cheerleading each other on. And that atmosphere is really exciting because you're celebrating this art form. And in the days that we live in today, it's not often you find yourself... And a hub of people celebrating art, <laughs> it was really powerful. So it was exciting to me, and it made made me want to do it more. You know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have you have done it more, right? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah.
3: When before we started, Blaze, uh, Ethan wanted to put me through a little trial by fire. So he sent me to. Uh, he's good friends with the actor Vincent D'Onofrio, and I'm friendly with Vincent from meeting him over the years, but. Vincent's like my size Mm -hmm. and uh, an unbelievably powerful actor and as, as, as intimidating as he can be, his heart is gigantic and he's extremely warm, but he did some acting classes with me and they were all about hour and a half sessions, there was like four of them. But it was, re- it was stuff that you, makes you super uncomfortable. You know, running a monologue where you and I are face-to-face holding hands and we're literally close enough to kiss. And he's like, just run your monologue where we're like this. <laughs> okay. And now run it like it's the most hysterical thing that you've ever heard. Now run it like you just found out your entire family was killed in a car accident. Now run it like this. Now run it on your hands and knees uh, digging an imaginary hole. All this stuff that I'd never done anything like that. I'd run a monologue before. I had never been asked to make, make myself ridiculous and make myself feel silly. So Vincent eradicated a lot of what I thought acting was to remind me of what it isn't. So when Vince saw the first cut of Blaze, he was very proud of Ethan, very proud of me. And he called me and said, would you be interested in being in this movie, The Kid I'm making? I don't know what the part is yet, but I want you to be in here. I would have been cowboy number 10 that says, okay, boss, and that's all I did. And I was right. so happy to be involved. But he gave me a substantial part, and I was Ethan's part Ethan's playing uh, uh, Pat Garrett in this Billy the Kid movie. So he made me his deputy and you know it was another experience another opportunity to be on a film set another opportunity to understand all uh, how things work which is really valuable to me and I love having a mission like I worked in I worked in kitchens and I like it when I believe in the chief if I believe in the chief I can really you know latch on and that experience was great fun for those reasons, and also I got a horse, and I got a cowboy gun, and got to you know go into battle, and, and uh, I had some harrowing moments, but it was all great fun. You know, It was all yeah. a lot of fun. I'd never been on a horse for five hours without getting off. That was pretty intense. That's, that's amazing.
2: This is shot in, what, New Mexico, maybe? Exactly, yeah, yeah.
3: in Santa Fe. It was right, right. south of Santa Fe. All were yeah. all those guys, you know. We had a rap party in the same spot where Billy the Kid and uh, William Bonney and Pat Garrett met. To Roy
4: Harper a song, pretty young thing We sing manic depression with our heartstrings to those pretty things And we're going to jump on the 20, motivate to Dallas Town Go not have a nap on the grass, you know where they cut John Kennedy down. And we're gonna uncork a bottle, maybe one, two, three, four, five. Find a fuzzy place where the lights is low to relax and unwind. Find some place to listen to some pedal steel guitars. Find some girls to whisper. Uh,
2: So let's go to your music. You you made a you made a record at at that time somewhere 2016. Yeah, seventeen. 17. So uh,
3: we wrapped the kid in November, and then I. <laughs> You're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah. You know? uh, and then Charlie and I talked. Louis Black um, was like, "I'd like to produce a record for you," and and, and you know. Charlie would be my first pick if, if, if I was picking. And I was so excited that Lewis was, was wanting to, you know, give me this opportunity because he was like, oh, we're going to make a good one. You know, you, you know, I think do it here. And I, of course I wanted Charlie and Charlie's into it, you know. And so Lewis facilitated this kind of fantasy situation where I got to come to um, Austin and hang with Charlie because Charlie and I are good friends now. And be at Arlen Studios, and I've known about Arlen for a long, long time. And uh, this is a, a Glimmer on the Outskirts. Ah, right. Yeah. The one that's coming out. Yeah, the one that's March. coming out. hmm Right, okay. And we were going to put it out last summer, uh-huh. but we all decided we didn't want to put it out versus Blaze. Right. Like, I didn't want to, like, do double press sure. all, you know? Right. So I was happy to wait. Uh, but December, like, 1st through, like, 18th of, the seven, of 2017, uh-huh. we... Uh, we made the record and it was really just a dreamy situation i sent all these demos to charlie and he sent them on to some musicians he thought would work so everybody knew the songs when we got started right. we, we didn't have to do any rehearsing you know and right. my songs aren't too tricky so those guys were pretty tight and charlie was the musical director and the producer and played guitar and played percussion and like he he really listened to my demos with a sharp ear and knew what i was aiming for and he right. lifted it up way way up and it was right. super super exciting
2: right so how many people played on this record? I mean, did you do bass, drums, keyboards, that kind of thing? Yeah, we
3: did. So the first three days on the floor, we had bass, two guitar, drums, and then we brought in Bucca Allen who played keys. Yeah, I love Bucca. Me too. Yeah, me too. He brought wonderful energy to the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did three days on the floor, and you know, then it was overdubs after mm-hmm. that. And uh, John Hardwick is a slide player, a pedal steel player, who came in and did. Absolutely magic work on two songs, and every single day going and working with Charlie on on these songs that I'd put my heart into and listening to them grow up and into these things I hadn't imagined yet was so fun, so wild, you know?
2: Right. Glimmer on the outskirts. Yeah, glimmer on the outskirts. And there's a is there a single or a uh, emphasis track? On, on the uh, we of? have a
3: single out right now called I think it's all different, uh-huh. and that's been we kind of did a soft release of a couple tracks in September, uh-huh. but now we've kind of re injected. Um, I think it's all different and that's out there being played on XM and F M and I'm in higher cotton than I never imagined and whatever happens next, you know, I'm just happy to be here. These
2: are all written over a period of time or were you Um to kind of I think Sequester yourself and write Yeah, my songs.
3: My default setting is songwriting, so like they're always mm-hmm. I've always like as we're talking I'm hearing like little things and I'm getting ideas and I'm Moving ideas over to don't forget this zone mm-hmm. of my brain. Right. Um, when I played Blaze, I did a thing I'd never done, which is I really tried to sort of mentally cork my songwriting, just because I wanted to be in Blaze world, and I was kind of writing like faux Blaze Foley songs in my mm-hmm. head all the time, like little you know, like little melodies. And uh, when we rapped, I wrote a song that's on the record. Like about five days before we wrapped, and I was Ali and I were visiting before this scene, and I was like, I have to like, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. This song is like demanding to come in, mm-hmm. so I wrote that down. But I didn't do any more of that until we wrapped. And once we wrapped, I wrote about oh geez maybe thirty plus songs, and out of those I sent uh, maybe twelve to Charlie. I sent about twenty songs to Charlie. He chose ten. What came out on the album were about, I think, five songs that I wrote in between January and spring of 17, right after the movie wrapped. And the other ones were songs I had written inside of the last 12-month period. I sent those 20 songs to Charlie. He chose 10. So thematically, he kind of picked these songs. And the whole record sort of is like meditations on hope and different versions of hope. And I discovered that kind of like after we started making it. I was like, oh, the ones he chose all have these kind of like... Different themes, so newer ones, older ones, they all have that same resonance of like hope in the sense of uh, everything's gone to hell and hope arrives. Or I've got to be... That's the
2: title, Glimmer on the Outskirts? Glimmer on the Outskirts, yeah. That's what reflects... Yeah, you know,
3: that title kind of came to me over the notion of like a fistful of dollars kind of situation, you know? (laughs) You know, like, uh, you know, we need help, no, no help is coming, no help is coming, and then the shine off of the glint of a gun belt mm-hmm. over the horizon one's mm-hmm. well, a glimmer on the outskirts. Mm-hmm. you know, so that's where the title comes from and that that kind of notion of like all is lost, and then here comes some fixer over the horizon i'm fascinated with what happens in our chemistry when we when hope comes back and there's like there's some hopeless situations all over the world all over the country and I'm interested in what shifts that, and I'm interested in who can shift that because it's my belief, everybody can, but there's certain people who remind them that they can, you mm-hmm.
2: know? So of those songs on Glimmer on the outskirts, of what one would probably reflect that idea the most, maybe?
3: Uh, probably this song, A Stranger on a Silver Horse. Uh-huh. Let's be amazed. I like uh, that title. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the singer of that song, uh, whoever they are, is kind of like, you know, jump down the hole, follow the rabbit. You know, he's not going anywhere, but if you, if you feel like you've got to follow him to get out of this situation, follow him. And don't forget to play, uh, if you play music, or don't forget to, you know, all these things that are reminders that, look, you're going to die. Yeah. That's the facts. You're going to die. But you can play and jump and run and, and visit and do all these things while you're here. But you also have to do something else. And the second, like, verses, the, the, the person singing that song is saying, rise up against the tide and sing in unison. So if y'all, y'all down here, all you folks that got to die, don't forget to be here, don't, don't forget to be present, and that there's hope in that. And if there's any entity, whether well, it's your boss, your president, your, the guy driving next to you, Rise up against it, you know. As big as the tidal forces of this life can be, there's tidal forces inside of people. So that's a reminder of that. And I think that thematically, that's what the record's hoping to spark.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Sex Sexhawk Black uh, put put this out, and yeah. uh, also they're connected with Dual Tone. Is that how, how they did that? Sort of imprint or something? Yeah,
3: imprint, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's Sexton, Ethan Hawk, right. Black, so... We were, they were just going to do it like that, and Erica Pinktips had a relationship. She's president of the record label. She had a relationship with Scott over at Dual Tone and kind of like unbeknownst to me when we were doing press for Blaze, um, I had this like string of emails that I had barely even got a chance to look at, and people were saying, hey, congratulations about the Dual Tone thing. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And it was explained to me, and I was like, well, that's gigantic news, man. Yeah. That's excellent is, because I'm dual tone, yeah, I know who dual tone is, and my friend Amos Lee is on dual tone, and right. uh, Hayes is on dual tone, Chuck Berry's last record was right. on dual tone, you know, I was just over the hills, far away, excited about it. Run,
4: run through the underground, turn your seeking eyes off, no air, feel the thunder out. Play, play the maple and the pine Play the great star early Out beyond western sky You can't kill If you don't
2: fly You fall to talk about uh here in americana podcast 51st day we like to talk about americana and um you know think about uh in terms of how how we really you know what first like to define the genre as much as we can and then we want to talk about how to expand it as much so so in your mind when you talk about americana in the first place would you consider uh, a glimmer on the outskirts an americana record
3: um, I think Americano applies partly to it uh, where it's coming from I mean when I think about Americano it spans it spans pretty wide you know it's mm-hmm. what is what's American music what does that mean and uh, what Americana is, is is it just folk or is it the intention of words or is it the way you arrange things and what what discount like what, what is something that somebody would say, well, that's not really Americana And I think it's a you know it's, it's cerebral like well, which one is it? Uh, mine, I think my this record has a little bit more uh, spaciness to it and what I mean by that is like I love echo, I love uh, I love kind of weird warble and modula- modulating sounds that maybe won't be present in what some people might define as uh, Americana music. I think some people define it as, Country western ish, acoustic guitars, mandolins, yes, you know, yes. that kind of thing. Which I think it is, but uh-huh. I think at the same time it can be, you know. I think this record dips into it for sure. Um, uh-huh. I'm I'm always I'm always a little allergic to genre definitions because I feel like every single person has a different version of what that is. Sure, uh, you know, people will say, well, Blaze Foley he wrote uh, country western music, and Ben plays a little bit more folk. Uh-huh. And I, well, what does that mean? <laughs> like, right. you know, like, I like, I, I always like to challenge that. But I, I love all the artists in that world, and I love all the energy that Americana um, rewards um Songwriters that have something, maybe even just to whisper, versus something to roar. Right.
2: right. So, if someone you right met on, say, an airplane or an airport or something, they ask you, you know, Ben, what, yeah. what kind of music do you play? What do what you answer? I like to say How rock and answer? roll. I like to say rock and roll. Because
3: uh-huh. right? my definition of rock and roll is a lot of stuff. You uh-huh. know, it's Led Zeppelin, it's Buddy Holly. Uh-huh. It's um, you know, Lightning Hopkins played the blues, but he was playing rock and roll to to a degree. And you know, I love four four time, and I like uh, I like bar chords, and I like Chuck Berry, you know. <laughs> and uh, I love guitars, you know.
2: <laughs>
3: so I like. I've to... never
2: thought about it as I love bar chords. That's very good.
3: Yeah, me. you know, yeah. Keith Richards had his biography that I loved. I read. I actually audio booked it, but. He said something over and over again that hit home with me, which is like, you know, it's rock and roll, but it's heavy on the roll, you know. It's that, <laughs> it's that swing, you know, and like, I like that swing a lot. And, you know, Charlie Sexton was just telling me this morning about, uh, I say this morning at about 3.30 this morning, about doing this tour he did with Chuck Prophet where they were playing some wow. girls all over Spain. Right. And I was, I love, I love, I love bands intros. Like I love like. What'd you play first, and what'd you close with? All my friends that are in bands and the bands that I love. If somebody went to go see a band, what'd they open with? Mm-hmm. What'd they close with? Mm-hmm. I, I'm obsessed with that. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to know what they did as mm-hmm. the opening. And he told me, and it was a pace setter, and it's so rock and roll, but it's so roll, mm-hmm. it's so swing, it's so you know that. So I feel like I'm in there. I feel like I'm in rock and roll world, and. I do sing songs slow and low and finger picking songs. And I think that's part of the whole lifespan of rock and roll as an entity is that at times you're in a kitchen with a friend and you're talking soft. Mm-hmm. And at times you're in a car with all of your friends roaring down the road, you know? Mm-hmm. So on a rock and roll record, you can have the big Titan song with the big guitars, but you can also have the sweetheart songs with slow. So that's
1: where I say I'm at. Yeah. Heaven could be heaven and hell could be hell. All time told us under reminiscence in an old
4: hotel. Hey, all right, look to the south, rising like a river full of cotton mouths. It's hard to deny that you've been hoping for the road to wash out. Coming from steam. To your color well.
2: We're talking with Ben Dickey, and we're talking about Americana music. This is Robert O'Keen. We're on Americana podcast. The 51st state. Um, you know, we have explored the the boundaries of Americana with Ben Dickey, actor, singer, songwriter, and uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to our uh, lightning round here. Oh yeah, ben. all right. So uh, here, are, and these are just sort of either or, or uh, multiple choice, but uh, it goes like this. You ready? Yep. All right. Gibson or Martin? Gibson. Jesse James or Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid. Lucinda Williams or Amy Lou Harris? Lucinda. Arkansas or Louisiana? Arkansas. <laughs> Sun Volt or Wilco? Wilco. Prine, John Prine or Johnny Cash?
3: <sighs> Merciful heavens.
2: I'll say he can answer quickly. <laughs> Johnny Cash. Well, this is the only one, you know. There's no right or wrong. Oh, here I ben. know. <laughs> Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. Oh, he's a fellow Arkansas guy, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm related distantly. Yeah.
2: Is that right? Yeah. Really?
3: Yeah. My my aunt did some research, and it's you know, it's true, but it's pretty distant. Yeah. yeah. I understand.
2: I understand. All right. Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad?
3: Game of Thrones.
2: The Ryman or the ACL Moody Theater?
3: Give me that moody. All right,
2: uh, David Bowie or David Byrne. David Bowie. Singing or acting. Singing. Pulled pork or brisket. Mm, pulled pork. Big dog or little dog. Big dog. <laughs> <laughs> little Rock or Big Spring. <laughs> little Rock. Stax or Motown. Ooh. Hmm. Stax. Duct tape or gorilla glue? Duct tape. <laughs> All right. Here's a few more. This is this is our remaining uh, lightning part of the lightning round. But we here at Americana Podcast want to come up with a better name for the B three because we feel like that that's really <laughs> holding the magic of the B three yeah. down. So. Uh, there, so, what would you call the B3 if you were to, with someone said, okay, Ben, it's your turn to rename the B3? Galactic Thrummer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, uh, I think that jumps right to the, front, right to the top right there. <laughs> anyway, so we've had a wonderful time here with Ben Dickey, actor, yeah. singer, songwriter at the Americana My name is Robert Keen. Thank you so much, Thank you, ben. Robert. We are, fun. oh, by the way, we are at Collings Guitars. Yes. Collings Guitars here. Do you have a Collings guitar? I want one desperately, yeah. 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 Well,
3: I fawn over Charlie's
2: all the time. Yeah, go talk to Steve. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Yeah, anyway, Collings Guitars has been so nice to let us use their boardroom to talk to Ben today, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much, Beth. And we wish you uh, Thank the you. best Thank of you. all and safe travels. Great. We'll do it. Thank you.
0: At this time, we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keane, Steve McCrary and Collings Guitars, Erica Pinktips at Sex Hawk Black, and our guest, Ben Dickey. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keane Productions, edited and produced by Clara Rose, mastered by Pat Manske, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play.